Dear Mary, I got your email and I'm going to do yours next, but I had to do chocolate toxicity first since we have Halloween coming up. So look for yours. Yours is going to come up next week. Maybe I'll even try to do it sooner if possible, but chocolate toxicity today. So uh, chocolate toxicity, I think is interesting. Um, it's interesting how chocolate is made, first of all. So I'm going to kind of go into a couple of things, just like how chocolate is made, because I think that's kind of cool. And then what the toxicity of chocolate is, uh, how the toxin affects the body, and the clinical signs that are seen, how we treat chocolate toxicity, and then the prognosis of chocolate toxicity. So with chocolate toxicity, uh, how the chocolate is made, first of all. So it's actually grown in like really tropical climates. Most of the time, most people like see it in Hawaii. That was the first time I saw it. I went to Hawaii. Then I saw this like pod on a tree. And it's not like it's on a tree from like a branch like you would normally see a fruit. It's actually right off of the trunk of the tree. If you like Google a picture of it, you'll see this picture of this yellow greenish pod that just comes right off of the trunk of this tree. And the inside that pod is gonna be the, the actual like fruit part, which if you are on the island or something and there's like wild monkeys and stuff running around, they eat the fruit part and then they naturally spit out that seed because it's really bitter. They don't like the taste of that, that chocolate uh, seed in there. And which is interesting because the chocolate seed is actually what carries all the toxins in it. So smart little monkeys, aren't they? Anyways, so what happens is because of the fact that these pods are on the tree, you can't actually go around with like a machine and cut them all down. So instead, people go and harvest all of those pods off of the trunks of the trees. They'll get all of them. They'll put them into like areas like the other like dig holes in the ground and put a bunch of these pods in there and then cover them up with banana leaves uh, that's how they ferment them so that all those banana leaves kind of help keep heat inside and then all the sun beats down on the banana leaves and that's what actually creates this um, brown color to those chocolate seeds otherwise the other way that they can do it too is sometimes they'll Put them into like bins and stuff but most of the time it's it's going to be this like they're going to put them under these these big brown leaves and then after it's fermented they're going to dry all of them out and once they've done that they are going to start to roast them so most of the time this roasting thing is done somewhere else like all of that stuff is done on the island and then they package them all up and then they send them somewhere else for the rest of this so the next portion is they're going to roast these seeds uh, once they are roasted, they either they're like ground down and they're pressed to make three different types of portions from the chocolate seed. So you're either going to have seed oil that's going to be removed, and that's where your cocoa butter is. So all those people who are doing like sun tanning and stuff, when it's ca calling for like cocoa butter sunscreen and stuff, uh, that's what you're getting it from is the the oil from the cocoa bean. Or the chocolate bean. There's also it's also put into like things like white chocolate and um, cosmetics and things like that. The second portion from that from that seed is going to be the chocolate liqueur. So that's the liquid portion of it. After it's ground down, that chocolate bean or cocoa bean is ground down, 
And that's what all of the toxins are, are in the chocolate liqueur, in that liquid portion of the chocolate. And then the third part of it is going to be cocoa powder. So that's the solid part. That's once you've taken out all of the liqueur and all of the oil, you're left with just this powdery substance. And that's the cocoa powder. All right. So now we've kind of like learned how chocolate is is made here. Now, now we have lots of different types of chocolate, right? You have cocoa powder, you have unsweetened baker's chocolate, cocoa beans, semi-sweet chocolate, dark chocolate, milk chocolate, white chocolate. I mean, there's a bunch of different types of chocolate, right? So really all that means is there's just different amounts of those three things put into each one of those types of chocolate. So the, if for things like cocoa powder, that's literally just the cocoa powder, right? That's just all the ground down, just cocoa powder versus the unsweetened baker's chocolate. You're going to have a large amount of uh, chocolate liqueur in there. Plus you're going to have things like the oil and also the cocoa powder in there. As you get down to ones that don't have as much toxicity into them, you're going to have the less chocolate liqueur in them and probably not a lot of cocoa powder in them as well. And that's going to be things like white chocolate. There's there's like minimal chocolate liqueur in there. It's mostly going to be things like sugar and vanilla and then a little bit of chocolate liqueur in there or a little bit of, of the the powder or the oil that's in there. Very, very small amounts. The other thing you need to consider is not just the chocolate or cocoa powder that's going to be in there. It's also all that other stuff that's going to be in there. There's a lot of fat in there and a lot of fat creates problems as well. It's not just the toxins from the chocolate. All right. So now I've kind of like talked about like what the types of different types of chocolate are and like how the chocolate is made and stuff. Now we're going to talk about the actual toxins themselves. So there are two different types of toxins. One is caffeine, and then the other one is called methylxanthine theobromine. This is kind of cool because this is one of the one of the only situations where you're going to actually have the toxin named after the plant. So the seed that it comes from, that cocoa seed, is called a theobroma cocoa. And we just talked about our toxin is methylxanthine theobromine. It actually makes sense. That like never happens. Anyways, so we talked about there's caffeine and methylxanthine bromines. They can affect both dogs and cats. It also affects wildlife as well. It can really affect like any animal. Can even affect humans. Like if you ate a ton of chocolate, you'd still have really high amounts of these in your system. Just we can digest them and break them down in our system much easier than dogs and cats can. But uh, they they both can cause problems. Both caffeine and methylxanthine theobromine can cause problems, but there's three to ten times more theobromine than there is caffeine in that chocolate liqueur. So in general, some of the things that it usually affects is going to be the central nervous system, so the brain, the heart, and skeletal muscles. So anything that you're going to be able to be moving, any of your limbs. You know, anything that you could voluntarily move. It also increases thirst and kind of induces smooth muscle relaxation. So what it does there by smooth muscle relaxation, usually that's going to be things like your guts, your intestines, 
have a lot of smooth muscle to them, and that can cause them to relax, which can cause things like diarrhea. So on kind of like a molecular level, uh, it does increase calcium, and the increase in calcium is what actually stimulates the heart. So if anybody looks into like what the heart cycle is like, uh, really what happens is calcium is needed for every beat of your heart because that when your heart beats, it's not just like a really quick like beat and then it stops. It's like a beat and then it kind of, when it squeezes, then when the heart squeezes, it kind of holds that squeeze for a second and then it lets go. And that squeeze when it's being held is kind of what the calcium is doing. There's a lot more stuff that goes into it. It's not just as simple, but that's kind of what the calcium is doing is, is, is sustaining that beat for a little bit longer so that your, your heart is squeezing for just a second more. The other things it's doing is it's increasing something called cyclic AMP. Anybody who's had to take biology is probably knows about cyclic AMP. And it's like, please never mention that again. Uh, it's a, you have to go through this whole cycle and remember the whole cycle and it was just terrible but really like all that means is that it increases messengers that go to other things so really it's increasing um your excitability and then it also releases catecholamines so catecholamines are important for like your fight or flight and again that's going to be stimulating you thinking that you need to like run away from a lion right so how much chocolate is going to be a problem technically when we talk about LD50, so that means like how much is the lethal dose? LDs does for lethal dose. The lethal dose is between 100 to 200 milligrams per kilogram, but it can actually occur at much lower doses as well, especially depending on what else is going on with the dog. Um, and even then, like it's hard to know like how much caffeine and how much methylxanthine or theobromine is in each one of these these bars like let's say the dog gets into a bar of chocolate how do we know exactly how much milk chocolate has as far as is theobromine it's not like you can look at the back of the package and it will tell you theobromine is this much or for cats it's a much lower dose than that we don't even know the dose for cats like we think that it's going to be lower than 200 but we don't know the dose for sure so how do we know then like how to figure out like how much is going to be an actual lethal dose? Uh, this is kind of like where some of those things that we can utilize online are. So there's things called the chocolate wheel. That's just like this. I I'm not sure if we have it up front or not, but it's like this wheel that you could look up the animal size and then you look up what kind of chocolate they got into and it will tell you the dose of how much caffeine or theobromine is in each one of those dosages and what do we need to do about it? Is it a lethal dose? Does that pet need to come in? The other thing is there are lots of resources online. There are lots of chocolate calculators online. People can look up these chocolate calculators on their own. We have chocolate calculators that we can look up on our, on our end as well. Um, but it becomes a little more complicated when we have these animals that eat tons of different types of chocolate or they eat chocolate that's like a homemade thing that somebody else made and we don't know how much they are right so it's become a little more complicated and now we have to start kind of looking for uh the clinical signs and stuff from them so what are some of those clinical signs how does it affect the body so the it affects the body by 
doing lots of different things. But one of the things is those toxins become absorbed from the GI system. So the dog eats the chocolate. The chocolate goes from the stomach into the small intestines. And in the small intestines, it absorbs all of those toxins that are from there. Now, in most toxicities, it absorbs the toxin, it goes through the waste products, and then it goes and gets excreted out, meaning it goes, all of the waste gets wasted out somehow into the stool or into the urine. Not chocolate. So chocolate is a little bit different. Chocolate goes through something that's called enterohepatic recycling. So it means it goes from the GI system, so from the small intestines, into the bloodstream, and then it goes into the liver, and then it goes back into the bloodstream, and then it goes back into the liver, and it just keeps going back and forth over and over again. And it can last a really long time. So some of these side effects can last for like 72 hours. The other problem is that methylxanthine, theobromine, can also be excreted in the urine. So when we ask you to take the dog out every two to four hours, this is going to be why. When it's excreted in the urine, it sits in the bladder because the dog fills up its bladder with urine, right? But when it does that, all of those toxins are sitting in the bladder. It gets reabsorbed into the bloodstream. And now we go back to the liver and it goes back into the bloodstream and then back into the liver and back into the bladder and then back into the bloodstream. And it's just the cycle goes over and over and over again. So in order to stop the bladder from being from reabsorbing all of that caffeine and all of that theobromine, instead, we have you guys take them out every two to four hours to try to have them go to the bathroom constantly. Or the other thing is we could put in a urinary catheter. So that way, there's no way it can get absorbed, right? Because if it goes em out immediately into the urinary bag, nothing is able to be reabsorbed. So that's if you don't feel like you can take them out every two, two to four hours, because I know that it gets crazy busy when there's like 14 patients, right? Hospitalized patients. If we can't do that, ask us to, if we can put a urinary catheter in for the night. Not a big deal. So after... The other thing with theobromine and caffeine is caffeine is usually the first thing that hits them. It's very quick onset, but it also goes away quickly. So we talk about half-lives. Half-life means like how long does it take for something to become half of what it was? So if you were to say there's 100 milligrams of caffeine in the body because of the chocolate toxicity, in about four and a half hours, there will only be 50 milligrams because it was cut in half. And in another four and a half hours, it would be um, 25 milligrams. And in another four and a half hours, it'd be 12 and a half milligrams. So the half-life of caffeine is four and a half hours. Now, theobromine is a whole nother ballgame. It takes a little bit longer for the effects, but it lasts a long time. Its half-life is actually 17 and a half hours. So in order to go from 100 milligrams down to 50 milligrams, it would take almost three quarters of a day to do that. So we can still see a lot of these side effects from the chocolate toxicity even the next day because there's still quite a lot in that dog system. Now, there can be really mild signs to this. So let's say the dog just gets into a little bit of, of chocolate or a very small amount of, or maybe it gets into a large amount of white chocolate because there's not a lot of toxins in there. 
Well, usually the mild signs we're going to see, they're going to occur sometime between two hours after ingestion to up to 12 hours after ingestion. And these mild signs are just going to be like usually GI symptoms. So um, maybe not wanting to eat, vomiting, diarrhea. They usually are drinking more water and that's because of just the effects of that cyclic AMP. So just the effects of what the it's doing on the brain. Uh, they might have a mild tachycardia. So tachycardia is the high heart rate. They might have some restlessness and they might even have a pancreatitis. If the dog is going to have really mild symptoms, then we may just induce emesis, send it home. And those are the things that you'll warn the owners about that they might see at home. You know, there's going to have some vomiting. They might have some diarrhea. Um, they might be a little bit restless for that night. And then in the next couple of days, they might have a pancreatitis because it's not an immediate thing. It's usually over a couple of days. So usually we're asking them to do a bland diet at home for a couple of days so that, that way we can try to help avoid a pancreatitis. But sometimes those symptoms are a lot more severe. So when they come in and they're already extremely hyperactive, I've seen some become very aggressive uh, when they are severely tachycardic, they are hyperthermic, so high temperature. They have arrhythmias, so the rhythm of their heart is not beating correctly. They might have hypotension, so low blood pressure, or hypertension, high blood pressure from this. Or they might even have seizures, coma, and even death from it. When we get into those really bad ones, like seizures, coma, death, really bad, bad prognosis. But any of these signs can potentially be seen, depending on, again, how much of the toxins they had gotten into. So one of the important things is going to be having them come in immediately. You know, So if somebody calls in and let's say uh, they talk to April and they're like, hey, my dog got into this tiny Snickers milk chocolate. It was a Labrador. You know, you could look it up on the chocolate calculator. They're going to be like, well, your 110 pound Labrador who's overweight got into this teeny tiny amount of milk chocolate. Um, it's probably going to be fine. You're going to be looking for these symptoms. You know, if you're, you start noticing your dog becoming really hyperactive, can't sleep, very restless, that's the time to bring them in. But you should expect that they might have some vomiting, some diarrhea, uh, maybe a little bit of restlessness and not wanting to eat. And that's okay. We don't need to bring them in for those things. Little things, they'll be fine. But when instead we have somebody else calling in maybe to Jen and they're like, Jen, my Labrador just ate my kid's whole bucket of chocolate from Halloween. Now we have a problem because we don't know how much chocolate is in all of that. Like most of the time they've eaten the wrappers as well. And it's quite a large amount of chocolate they had gotten into. Sometimes too, the other problem is, is that people have handmade things. And so you don't know how much chocolate were in those things. And again, if it's something really high in chocolate, so like there's tons of cocoa powder in it, there's like really high amounts of uh, baker's chocolate or something in it, then that becomes a real big problem. So the best thing for those situations is have them come in immediately for us to induce emesis. So emesis, just making them vomit. 
So Jen tells them, come down. We're going to make, you know, we need to evaluate your pet and try to get them in right away. So maybe they come down and let's say um, Erica goes to get the pet and talks to them. One of the most important things is asking them, how long ago did they get into it? We need some sort of window, some sort of time frame. So we need to make sure that it's going to actually be productive if we make that dog vomit. Let's say we're seeing all these clinical signs from them, like they're hyperactive, they're tachycardic, but maybe they got into those that chocolate yesterday. That's going to be really important to know. So if Erica goes out there and they're like, yeah, they got into that chocolate last night, then I'm not going to induce emesis. Really, stuff sits in the stomach for about three hours. So after that, it's not as likely that we're going to get stuff back. If they're like, four hours that I'm still probably going to try because it's better to try to get stuff out if possible. So that way we can decrease the amount of toxins that are in the bloodstream in general. But otherwise, you know, let's say they said we just got into it. We just got home. We saw that the dog had gotten into the the chocolate. We're going to make them vomit pretty much immediately. And then after that, it just kind of depends on like how much do we get back? And if the dog is already showing clinical signs as to what the next step is going to be. So let's say the dog did vomit. It vomited quite a bit of chocolate. It's not showing any clinical signs. It's not tachycardic. It's not restless. Uh, It seems like it's pretty normal. Then we're probably not going to hospitalize them. We're probably going to send them home and say, just watch for signs of being really hyperactive. Um, if you notice that they just are really restless, cannot settle down, like that's one of the biggest things the owners will see at home is that their dog just will not settle down. Other things too, is just like having their hand on their heart to noticing whether their heart is just racing. Like people don't usually know how to count their dog's heartbeats. I don't usually ask them to do that, but if they notice that their dog's heart is racing, uh, then I'll tell them to bring their dog back because they might need to be hospitalized if that's the case. And also watching for seizures as well. But if we're already seeing those signs, like when the dog comes in to be hospitalized in general, or let's say it was yesterday and we're seeing some of these signs or it's or the dog ate a large amount and we're not getting very much back, then maybe we're going to hospitalize that dog. And when we hospitalize, we've already induced emesis. We are going to give them serenia because we want to make sure that they aren't continuing to vomit. Um, At some point, the vomiting can turn into aspiration pneumonia because when they vomit, they're going to inhale that vomit and then it's going to go, all that bacteria is going to go into the lungs and that creates pneumonia. So we don't want them to get to that point. Usually we're putting them on IV fluids so that that way we can flush those toxins out of their body as much as possible. We talked about how all those toxins go from the bloodstream into the liver and so we're going to try to get those out as much as possible and also dilute it in the urine so that that way the body is not absorbing as much. Taking them out every two to four hours, like I said, I know it's a pain. I'm real sorry. I always hate it when when I have to write it down to do that, but it's super important. Or put a urinary catheter in. Now the next thing is controversial. It used to be that we would do activated charcoal three times a day, four times a day for 72 hours. If you call poison control now, they tell you not to do that. And the reason why we used to do it was because the the thought process was that these charcoal has a lot of really big molecules to them and it will help 
push all of that chocolate, anything that remains, through the intestines. Because one of the things with emesis, the problems with emesis, is we cannot make the dog vomit 100% of what's in its stomach. Usually we can make them vomit somewhere between like 75 to 95% of what's in their stomach. There's always going to be something left in there. So our goal with charcoal is to like push it through the intestines so that, that way it's not able to absorb as much of the toxin. And then it also possibly was absorbing some of those toxins as well so that, that way it wasn't getting absorbed in the bloodstream and creating this toxicity. Well, we started to kind of shy away from doing that now. And the reason why is because those big molecules inside the charcoal, um, they also draw a lot of fluid with them. Water loves going where big molecules are. And if those big molecules are in the small intestines, then water is going to go in there creating more diarrhea and creating dehydration. Well, if we already have a pet who's kind of already dehydrated from the vomiting, from the absorption of the the um, chocolate, from the diarrhea that it's already going to have, then we want we don't really want to make the dog have more dehydration. The other problem is that it can cause hypernatremia, which is high sodium. And that can cause the dog to have like neurological things. Then we have to fix the hypernatremia and that can be a problem as well. So in general, if you were to call poison control and ask them about whether to give activated charcoal, they're going to tell you only to give it when there are cases where there are really high doses of theobromine and not really in cases where we're not too terribly concerned. So most of the time, we're not going to give activated charcoal. Or maybe somebody will give one dose of activated charcoal, and that's about it. The other things we might give are going to be possibly like heart medications. And these are generally when we see that the dog is tachycardic, but not agitated. If the dog is tachycardic and agitated, we can give them some sort of sedative. So we'll give them like acepromazine to help calm them down. But if the dog is tachycardic, has a high heart rate, and it's not agitated, it's just sitting there in the kennel, that's not good. So that means that the theobromine is affecting the heart, and we're probably going to reach for something else. Uh, propanolol is the drug that is usually used for that, and it's just to try to help bring down the heart rate when the dog's blood pressure is normal and they're not agitated. Other things might be anticonvulsants or muscle relaxers. Uh, you'll hear me in other podcasts talk about the fact that in any toxicity, if you don't know what the toxicity is, don't use midazolam or diazepam because they can definitely make things worse. Luckily in this one, we don't have to worry about that. You can use midazolam, you can use diazepam, it's not going to cause a problem. But if still, if you don't know, like for some reason you didn't know why that dog was having a seizure, Keppra is still a good thing to give. Or if we're using, um, if we're worried about like muscle tremors, methocarbamol is just fine as well. And lastly, we're going to worry about a bland diet. Because like I said before, you know, this potentially is going to cause a pancreatitis. So we want to try to give them a bland diet and just avoid this uh, pancreatitis in general. Maybe we're going to give them some diet gel or some probiotics and stuff as well, or send them home with them too. And then depending on like how 
bad the clinical signs are, what we see kind of depends on how long they're hospitalized for. We kind of have to just assume that they might be hospitalized for 72 hours because that's usually like the case, like how long it should be in their system. But there are definitely often times where I talk to owners and I say, well, why don't we see if we see clinical signs in 12 hours? Because if we don't see clinical signs in 12 hours, the pet should be fine. We shouldn't have to worry. There's not going to be very many clinical signs that are going to happen after that. Like usually we're going to see signs in that first two to 12 hours. So if we don't see sign in 12 hours, then I'm usually sending them home and just letting them know to monitor for all those other things we talked about before. The hyperactivity, you know, restlessness, um, their heart beating out of their chest, things like seizures, things like that. But if not, if they seem like they are showing those clinical signs when they're in the hospital, then I prepare them for this might be up to 72 hours that they're in the hospital for. Now, what's the prognosis for this? So it depends. If we don't see any clinical signs, the prognosis is great. They should be totally fine. Or let's say we just see some mild vomiting, diarrhea, some restlessness. They do great. No problems. If they're starting to show that they're hyperactive, hyperthermia, we get those things under control. Again, prognosis is fantastic. When we start to see things like seizures and coma, that's bad. That is a bad prognosis. We're very concerned at that point, and we need to be like on top of those animals. Because if we're starting to see seizures, or we're starting to see coma, we need to start looking at other things that we might have to do for that pet. So it might be like looking into um, doing things like we would do for head traumas, things like that. But that's going to be up to the doctor to try to figure out like what the next steps are going to be for those pets. But it's not going to be a good prognosis when we get to those things. Luckily, I can say it's pretty rare when we do get to those. I've only, I, I've actually never seen a dog die from chocolate toxicity. So it's pretty good. All right. So I thought I would put this out there just for our Halloween that's coming up. Um, I also put this out here. I, I know I haven't really mentioned this before, um, but I also do a podcast for the owners. Uh, so it's called Vetsplanation. And it's available literally on every single podcast thing that you can find. And it's uh, there's a chocolate toxicity one on there for them as well. So if you want to tell them like, hey, you can go listen to this podcast. It has a lot of the same information on there too. So that they can go listen to it and kind of understand what to watch for and what to look for for their chocolate toxicity dogs as well. Like I'm kind of using this as just something to help owners to understand what's going on with their pets. So feel free to use that as a resource for you guys as well. All right, my story for you is I'm going to teach you something crazy. So I just learned this on another podcast because my wife and I, real quick, we went up to um, Mount Vernon for the weekend. It was amazing. Thank you again to Hannah and Tia. You are amazing for helping us while my wife and I went on our little mini vacation, literally for the first time in nine years. It was great. But um, we went to this little tiny cabin and we were driving up there. We always listen to podcasts. Usually it's murder podcasts, but uh, my wife and I also listen to like lots of other educational podcast things as well. And uh, this time it was her turn to pick the educational thing. And so we listened to one that was talking about like all sorts of things. But one of the things it was talking about was about the metamorphosis of um, caterpillars to butterflies. 
And, you know, I just kind of assumed that the caterpillar inside the cocoon just sprouted its wings and then became a butterfly. Like, I didn't really think there was anything else to it. But that's not what happens at all. Okay, so get this. So, the caterpillar, there was some guy in like the 1800s or 1500s or something like that. I know I'm not telling the story great, I'm sorry. But this guy had like opened up a live caterpillar and then he showed that inside the caterpillar, there are already components for the butterfly. There's already pieces of antenna. There's already pieces of wing. And there's already extra legs in there ready to go. So there's already like all the components in there. So they kind of thought that as well. They thought that, okay, the caterpillar goes into the cocoon. It has all of these things. They just all kind of go into place. And then caterpillar becomes a butterfly, right? No. So then the next thing is, is they had these people who like cut open the cocoon. And you know what they found? Do you know what they found? They found goo. They didn't find a caterpillar at all. They didn't find any like structured form. They found that the caterpillar just became this like gooey substance. And then somehow that gooey substance then forms all together and makes a butterfly. Like we still have no idea how this happens. Like that's like one of the crazy things about, about this life cycle like still nobody knows how that occurs because it's not like like we talked about you know it has all the things there it has all the components but then how does it go into a goo and then somehow come out as a butterfly so crazy so crazy anyways uh, other really cool thing about it is they did all these studies to try to figure out like if the the caterpillar did something or like learned something as a caterpillar could it remember those things as a butterfly and it does so that does tell you that all of those little components and little nerves and neurons and brain cells that it has they are all saved as the caterpillar to become this butterfly just crazy crazy okay anyways all right thank you guys if you have any questions feel free to let me know and like i said uh, Mary, I will do your podcast next week. Thanks, guys.